awesome. Beautiful. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back. Last week, we started a new uh, sermon series in Micah, and it looks like it wasn't that bad. You guys came back, Uh, especially when my three points were sin, judgment, and lament. Uh, What a way to kick off the summer, right? Uh, With a nice feel-good sermon. Uh, So we learned last week that Micah, his name is a rhetorical question. It means, who is like the Lord? And the answer to that question can be uncomfortable as we are made aware of just how unlike the Lord we all are because of our sin. But the affirmative answer to this question is undeniably good. It's a response of praise to our God who alone can rescue us from our sin. The world we live in, it's no secret, it's a broken place. It's filled with wars, oppression, and injustice. But if we're honest with ourselves, the problem isn't just out there with those people. The problem is also within each and every one of us. Russian novelist and Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote that the dividing line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. So as we continue with Micah chapter 2 this morning, we'll again be confronted by uncomfortable truth, but we'll also encounter the goodness of God before we're done today. So let's get to it then. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 2. If you need a Bible, please make use of our pew Bibles. You'll find today's text on page 924. And once you're there, I invite you to stand with me, if you're able, out of reverence for our great God and his good word. And follow along with me as I read. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, Against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he lots our fields. Therefore, you'll have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? 
But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. It is good and true and right and powerful. It is effective uh, to divide between joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Lord, divide our hearts with your word today. May your spirit operate on our hearts. Show us what we need to see in our hearts. Show us where we need to repent and turn back to you, Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are good. You are a good, good father. We thank you for your good word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So three points this morning. The problem, the punishment, the promise. Here we go. Verses 1 and 2. This is God's indictment against his people, but specifically against oppressors, against wealthy and powerful who use their power to exploit the poor and the weak. And we know this is a problem when the indictment begins with one word, woe. Woe. It's the Hebrew word, oi. Oi. It's a word of grief and of lament, typically reserved for funerals. It was a word of death to those who thought they were really living the good life. Theologian Sally Brown paints a contemporary picture of the scene of uh, chapter 2 here. She writes, Imagine prosperous landholders gathered at a benefit gala. Bursts of laughter ripple through the room. Their mood is buoyant. Their common bond, in addition to an elite social standing, is a knack for finding the upside in a volatile land market. But just as they are lifting their glasses to congratulate themselves, the party is interrupted by a message, by a messenger. Drinks are poised in midair. All are strained to listen. The messenger bears a funeral announcement. Whose? Theirs. Verse 2 spells out this problem very clearly. They coveted and they seized fields that were not theirs. They took the homes and the inheritances of other men. Not only did they take their homes, but fast forward to verse 8, it says they stripped the robes from those who passed by. They literally took the shirt off their backs. In this culture, a robe was a symbol of dignity. So not only did they take their robe, but with it also their dignity. 
Verse 9 says that they even oppress the most vulnerable of their society, the women and the children. But where does this come from? How does one get to a point where they're committing such evil acts? It's not like people wake up one day and think, man, I'm going to really stick it to the women and children today. You know, uh, How does someone get there? Where, where does this come from? So first notice the progression in verse 2. First, they covet. Then they seize. Coveting is a desire of the heart. And when it's matured, it produces the outward evil of stealing. Verse 1 says, they worked evil on their beds, meaning that their plans were laid in private. On their beds. It's what occupied their dreams. Plans to get ahead through exploiting the poor consumed their private thoughts. It's what they think about. It's what they dream about. What I want you to see is this starts in the heart, and it's no different for us today. James 4, 1 and 2 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see the progression there in James 4? It first starts with desire. You don't have it, but you want it so badly, so you're willing to to do whatever it takes to get it. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's It's not wrong to want things. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have possessions or even to be wealthy. But when you want things too much, those things become idols. And you reject the truth that God is really enough to satisfy you and you believe a lie that you can make yourself happier on your own apart from God by acquiring whatever that is, what the, the desire of your heart. Now verse 1 says, when morning dawns they perform it. Notice something here. Their evil is not done in secret under the cover of darkness. No, they're exploiting others in broad daylight and getting away with it. This is a culture, it's a society where these practices were tolerated. People looked the other way. Here's how this worked. In an agrarian society, land was everything. Land was your livelihood. Land was your inheritance. Land ensured a future for your family. And the wealthy and the powerful, they seized their neighbor's land legally, but in very underhanded ways. Here's what they would do. They did this by lending money to those that they knew couldn't pay them back. And when they defaulted on their loans, they legally took possession of their land. They would prey on the weak and on the poor. Notice verse 1 says they did this because it was in their power. It was in the power of their hand to do it. These oppressors had covetous desires and the power to, to, to get what they wanted. And this represents a complete reversal of how God's people were to live. God's people were to be a blessing to those around them. But they, they were to use their power to do good, 
to do good to others, even at their own expense. But instead, they're seeking their own good at the expense of others without power. A few points of application here are appropriate before we move on to the next point. When we think of oppression, our minds can easily drift to caricatures of evil. We think Hitler, Stalin, or Putin, right? These are obvious evils in our world that make it easy for us to cry out, Whoa! Oi! Oi! To those who devise them, who devise these, these wicked evils. And when our, but when our minds too quickly drift there, we avoid the important work of examining our own hearts. Maybe you're not actively oppressing or exploiting anyone for your own selfish gain. If you are, repent and turn to Jesus. But the seeds of oppression in your heart are in the form of wanting things too much. There's a pandemic in the West that no one is talking about. It's more deadly than COVID, influenza, smallpox, or even the Black Plague combined. It's called affluenza. Western advertising spreads the contagion telling millions of people that they must what they must have to make them happy. Throwing fuel on the fire of covetous hearts to dream and to scheme how to get what they want, all the while leading them to disaster. There's no vaccine for affluenza, but there's an incredibly powerful treatment The Apostle Paul says the way to transform your life is by renewing your mind. By renewing your mind. What you meditate on in private is what determines the course of your public life. What is your public thought or your your private thought like life like? Is it is it consumed with the things you want and dreaming and scheming how to get them? Instead, renew your mind by meditating on the goodness of God. Renew your mind by meditating on the goodness of God. Psalm 103.5 says, It's the Lord who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Think about what power you do have. The attitude of God's people should be one of dreaming and scheming how to leverage your power and your wealth to bless your neighbors, to bless your community, to bless the world, not exploit them. All right, let's move on to point two, the punishment. God's people broke their covenant with God. They broke the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. They broke the 8th commandment, thou shalt not steal. All covenants include a list of of blessings for faithfulness and a list of curses for unfaithfulness, and they've broken this covenant, and so they should expect disaster from the Lord. So verses 3 and 4, they address the punishment that's coming to God's people, but the great irony in this punishment is that first, uh, while the people were busy devising wickedness in verse 1, God, we learn in verse 3, is also devising something. He's devising disaster that he's going to bring upon them. So they're busy at work devising, but so is the Lord. 
And he'll use the Assyrian army to bring down the northern kingdom and eventually the Babylonian army to bring down and destroy Jerusalem and conquer the southern kingdom. This will be such great disaster that their pride will be crushed. The second irony is in verse 4, the cries of those that they oppressed will become their own. The cries of those they oppressed will become their own. Whoa, we, we, are, we are utterly ruined. We are ruined. And the third irony also in verse 4 is that while they were oppressing their neighbors by taking their land, God will take their land. God will take their land from them when they're sent into exile in Babylon. And the punishment goes another step further in verse 5. For the unjust oppressor who exploits the weak will have none to cast the lot by, or cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Let me unpack that phrase for you a little bit to help you understand. This is referring to dividing up and distributing the land, the land to God's people in the promised land. Because even though they will be taken into exile, God will bring his people back, but when they return, there will be no allotment for them. Essentially saying they're going to be cut off, cut off from the people of God. This is what the assembly of the Lord refers to, the congregation of God's chosen people. These oppressors will be excluded from any future inheritance that they denied to the poor and the weak. Now understand that that none of this has happened yet. So you could imagine that Micah's popularity rating as a prophet, it's pretty low. It's pretty low in a society that tolerated these wicked practices. Micah's not the most popular prophet around. So in verses 6 and 7, Micah is going to address pushback that he gets from his message from false prophets of his day. Their message? Don't preach. Don't preach a message like that. With all this doom and gloom and judgment stuff. What are you thinking, Micah? We're God's people, right? His opponents... They build a case by asking three rhetorical questions. First, should God's people really suffer disgrace? Come on now, Micah. Has the Lord really grown impatient with his chosen people? Really, Micah, get with the program. Are these the kind of things that a loving God does, Micah? Really, stop preaching. Stop preaching that nonsense. The implied answer, of course, to all these questions is no, Micah's opponents preached that a loving God would never bring disaster on his chosen people. He only ever works to make his people happy. That's what sells, Micah. That's what's really going to get the attention of the people. But now remember from back to last week. God's love and God's anger are not in opposition to one another. God's anger flows from his love. And it's often a, a, a form of, of loving discipline to bring us back to him. Here's another thought to consider. How might you be like the people of Micah's day, pushing back on a rebuke, an uncomfortable confrontation with your sin? May we all have humility 
to hear it. I touched on this last week a bit, but remember the Lord disciplines those he loves for their good. And restoration will come, but it comes through rebuke. And how do we respond to that rebuke? Now Micah has a rhetorical question of his own at the end of verse 7. He says, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? The implied answer to this is yes, yes. His words are good news to those who walk uprightly. But Micah tells them in the very next verse that they have risen up as enemies against their own people. They are not walking uprightly, so they should not expect goodness from the Lord but disaster. The imperative of these false prophets is do not preach Do not preach this kind of downer sin and punishment stuff. But God, again, in irony, God has his own imperative for them. In verse 10, arise and go. Get out. Their oppression is denied rest for the people that the promised land was intended to give them. And they're not a blessing to their neighbor, but a curse. The previous occupants of the land were vomited out because of their wickedness. And now God's people have become just like them. They look more like their pagan neighbors than they do their loving God. And their punishment is the same. Eviction from the land into Babylonian exile they will go. Micah now critiques the message of his opponents in verse 11. They are lying windbags. Their words are empty at best and their lies at worst. They misrepresent God's character. They misrepresent God's ways. Micah says they preach wine and strong drink. Their message is comforting and reassuring for those who live in comfort and indulgence. Surely none of that sin and judgment stuff, right? But their preaching liqueur intoxicates many, and they lead them in a stupor to disaster. Here's a word of caution for you today. Not much has changed since Micah's day. There are still competing voices that all claim to speak the truth of God in our world today. And the internet and social media have amplified this exponentially. Look on YouTube, on Instagram, there's no shortage of people wanting to tell you what God says. So here's a pro tip. Just because someone has millions of followers on YouTube doesn't mean you should trust them. There's a lot of garbage out there that will poison your soul. It will go down easy. It will make you feel warm and fuzzy, but it will lead you to disaster. So be careful. Be careful. My recommendation is if you're not sure about someone, about their ministry or a particular teaching, here's three things you can do. First, know the word of God for yourself. Read it. Meditate on it. Study it. Study it alone. Study it with friends. If you're not in a discipleship group, by the way, here's a good plug for that. 
This would be a great start for anyone wanting to get into the Word with others. Reach out to myself or Debbie Brown if you want to learn more about our discipleship groups. Second, ask a godly mentor, a pastor, an elder that you know and trust to give you their opinion. The problem with the internet is that you don't know that person. You only know what they want you to see. They're, they're, they're putting that, they're uploading those videos, they're manicured, right? Uh, they're, they're showing you what they want you to see. You don't know their way of life if they are genuine about what they're preaching or teaching. Go to someone you trust, someone whose life you know to be a humble and a godly follower of Jesus. Get their opinion. And thirdly, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit for discernment that you would be able to sift error from truth. There's so much of it out there, church. We've got to be careful that our hearts are not led astray uh, by false teaching. So let's transition to our third point here, the promise. Finally, we've, we've gone through almost two chapters of Micah with this doom and gloom, judgment, sin, punishment, right? And finally, we get to verses 12 and 13, and for the first time, we're going to see explicitly some hope. Some hope. We've slugged through these two chapters, and now we come to a good promise, and it's a good one. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Amen? So the same Lord that scattered his people into exile will restore them. Notice the three actions here in in, uh, verse 12. He, He will assemble He will gather. He will set them together like a flock in its pasture. He will do it. And the metaphor changes in verse 13. The Lord will open a breach in the wall of their captivity and he will lead them out in freedom. The Lord is their great shepherd king. While their leaders use their power to exploit the people, their true king will use his power to liberate. We saw in chapter 1 that the Lord will descend and he'll tread down their cities in judgment. But here at the end of chapter 2, we get a glimpse of the Lord as a great breacher. who will, He'll arise from among his people, not to judge, but to gather and to tread down the walls of their prison and lead them out in a new exodus. And this is a victory that God's people, the church, experience today in two glorious ways. One is present and the other is yet to come. First, in our sin, we're all prisoners of sin and death. But because Jesus, our good shepherd, gathers his people and breaches the walls of our captivity to sin and death. John John 10, 11, we'll get there at some point in our John series when we go back there. But he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, Jesus breaches the walls of our captivity. How? By laying down his life for 
for his people. Jesus was mistreated. Jesus was oppressed and exploited. His robe and his dignity were stripped when he was lifted up on the cross to bear the full punishment for our sin. And three days later, he breached the walls of his tomb in victory. He has gone before us that we might follow by heeding his rebuke and receiving his grace, the forgiveness of our sins. If you've never known this victory, it's yours for the taking today. It's a free gift of grace received by faith alone. Come to Jesus and find victory and life that truly satisfies, unlike all the broken promises of our world that overpromise and underdeliver and will only lead you to disaster. Come to Jesus today and truly live. The other victory is the fullness of our salvation yet to come. Christians, you feel this. That, that while you have victory and forgiveness in Jesus now, you still groan. At times, knowing that you still live in Babylon. This world is not your home. At times, the future of the church can seem bleak when you look at the affluenza-plagued culture around you, when leaders use their power to oppress and exploit a culture that not only doesn't share our values but won't tolerate them. Christians, we live in exile. This land is not our home. We're in a new Babylon. And this is where Micah's words offer such great hope. Because they remind us that no matter how bad things get, the final word for the church is blessing, not brokenness. Here's a glimpse of what awaits from Revelation 7. For lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So don't lose hope, Christian. Persevere, knowing that while things may get worse here in Babylon, the best is yet to come. Because Jesus, our good shepherd king, the great breacher, will return to breach the walls of our captivity and lead us to true and lasting freedom and rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We thank you. We thank you that you've breached the walls of captivity of sin and death for us. Thank you that you bore the punishment due to us when you died on the cross in our place. And thank you that you will one day return to breach the walls of this Babylon we live in today and usher in your new kingdom in its fullness. Thank you, God, that uh, when we gather, we are an expression of the kingdom to come. We get glimpses of, 
of glory yet to come. So we thank you for the, the privilege to gather and assemble. And God, we thank you that you are gathering your people, you're gathering your flock, you're bringing them together. Father, we pray that you would use us to do that work. There are many in our community who you want to gather. Use us, Lord, as your ambassadors to this community. May we go out, not, not in our silos, consumed with thoughts of things that we want, but, Father, consume our thoughts with what you want. Help us to meditate on your word. God, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. And help us to reach people around us. Help us to bring this good news to them. God, show us the way. And may we walk in, in faithful obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So much, Pastor Mike. That was so good. And may God help us to persevere and to keep our hope in Him. He is our solid rock, and the best is yet to come. Let's all. Thank you.